sex talk. Derek and Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No. Sex talk. With Derek and Miley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here, and I am joined by, I would say, one of my top 10 favorite people in the world. (laughs) And it's doctor now, Dr. Jamie Kennedy. Unless you kept your last name. And the audience is going to understand this in here in just a second, why I don't know this. <laughs> so Jamie and I went to school together. We went to Whitworth University together back in the day when we were just getting our bachelor's degrees. <laughs> and Jamie has gone on to do some incredible things. So we're going to nerd out together a little bit today about virginity. But Jamie, go ahead and talk about you and how do you want me to dress you these days? Can I call you Dr. Jamie? Like, is that better? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't spend all those years getting that degree for nothing. So feel Damn free straight. to use the title. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Jamie is just fine. Jamie is also just fine. All of those work. So. Tell the audience a little bit about what you did your dissertation on, because that's what our, the focus of our, our time together today is. Sure, sure, sure. So I did my dissertation on the rhetoric of virginity in the contemporary United States, which is a big topic. So in order not to write a 30-chapter book that no one would ever read, um, <laughs> I narrowed it down a little bit. And so I looked at the rhetoric of virginity in three key places that I thought had a lot of impact on each other and had a lot of impact on individuals. And so that would be the legal community. So things like legislation, things legislators themselves are saying, court cases, testimony and hearings that happen in Congress, that kind of whole legal nexus. I looked at the medical community. So things that doctors are saying, sometimes when they testify in Congress, things doctors are and are not allowed to say to patients, things doctors are saying to each other in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And part of my argument was that the legal and the medical communities always have a reciprocal relationship. So doctors testify before Congress about what the best health policy should be, and then Congress makes laws that kind of impact what doctors can and cannot say to their patients in some ways. And then I argued that the way these medical and legal communities impact each other eventually seeps into our popular culture. So even with something like a law, say, regulating whether or not doctors can talk to their patients about abortion, the general public is not necessarily aware of the text of that law. So where do they get that from? Where do they get their knowledge of what kind of the legal culture around that is? I argue that they get that from kind of what becomes pop culture norms and tropes. And so even just looking at those three communities, if I looked at them for the entire history of the contemporary United States, it would be really overwhelming and hard to get a handle on. So I compared two different eras that had every reason to be different, but were interesting because the rhetoric was almost exactly the same when it had no reason to be, and it wasn't the same in any other area of life. And that was World War II, 1940 to 1945, and what I call the early war on terror, 2001 to 2008. 
It's interesting. Like, so what I'm hearing you say is that you took these communities that create laws that eventually, uh, or at least influence the language of laws and medical communities, and then tracked that down on how that made it into our everyday lives and pop culture and how we communicate with one another, whether it be like back in World War II, obviously we didn't have social media, but later on we did have like email and things like that so so th- it's really interesting that you were able to track that from those times and so tell me a little bit about how they compare and what do people not know yeah so the comparison is just crazy because again when you think about the culture that we had in let's even take the end of world war 2 1945 TVs were not common in every household mhm like you said we had no social media Romantic culture was very different and popular culture was more romantic than sexual. In Mm. a lot of ways, certainly there were, you know, if you were a savvy cultural reader, you knew when movies and things were hinting that sex had happened. Right. But you did not see it. You did not hear it explicitly talked about. And even just the way technology was so, so different. So I, in my dissertation, I looked at basically if you're going to communicate with the mass of the American people in World War II versus the War on Terror, how are you going to do that? And so I looked at these really fascinating U.S. government-produced anti-VD propaganda posters Interesting for World War II because that was the way you communicated with everyone, whether they maybe had a TV that received the one channel that was broadcasting Right. Whether they had an in-home radio, whether they were mobile because of the war, everyone would see these posters. Mm -hmm. And so that's just such a different medium. You know, if you thought about how am I going to get a message to everyone in the United States now, you would never think I'm going to put a ton of posters everywhere. Right. And that sounds like how you would find your dog, not how you would (laughs) communicate like a dramatic message. Exactly. And so for the war on terror, I actually looked at a TV show. I looked at Secret Life of the American Teenager. Mm. particularly because it was marketed to families as kind of a vehicle to get parents and their kids to talk about sex Mm -hmm. and sexuality. So, you know, and that is a very different thing. And I talk in my dissertation about how I was able to look at the secret life of the American teenager because it's now on Netflix. Mm -hmm. I missed it when it first came out. I didn't see it. I was too old for it. I don't think I've seen that either, actually, honestly. Yeah, it's a terrible show. Um, (laughs) But now I want to go watch it. Please do. And then call me while you're watching it so we can yell at each other at the same time. (laughs) I love Um, it. (laughs) In one of my favorite things that you've ever said to me, call me when you get indignant. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah, I do tend to. Yeah, I want to hear when people yell. That's like one of my favorite things when people are passionate. So yeah, I will call you when I get indignant. Please do. So I missed it when it came out. I only kind of found out about it because I was home on a break and my niece was watching it on Netflix and it caught my attention for being so odd. So I kind of talk in my dissertation about how Netflix and streaming services have changed the way we think about TV and markets and how that's very different from World War II, which all of that makes it even more odd that you would see kind of the same messages about virginity at these World War II posters mm-hmm. and in this ABC family television drama. It's really interesting that 
both of those things, I was actually making a note while we were talking. I'm like, this is really interesting that you can look at these two vastly different time periods, mm-hmm. vastly different technological eras, and yet still seem to see these same messages about virginity. Yes. So maybe it might be helpful to our listener that you and I talk a little bit about what virginity is mm-hmm. and maybe the definition that you saw the difference or the same thing during these two periods of time. Absolutely. So I think it'll be helpful if I start with kind of what my conclusions were from my dissertation and work backwards, because one of the tricky things about virginity is it's very, very hard to pin down what it is. Mm -hmm. So it's often easier to start with a concrete example. So as you know, when talking to groups about virginity, the first question is always, what is virginity? And people tell you very confidently, virginity is not having had sex. The next question is, what is sex? And that's where things start to fall apart a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So what I found in my dissertation, when I say that the rhetoric was exactly the same between these two time periods in U.S. history and these two wars, it's important Mm -hmm. that they're wars. I found that in both instances, in medical, legal, and popular culture communities, the virginity of certain types of women was being explicitly linked to national security. Interesting. So in these World War II posters that I look at, and you can Google World War II anti-VD posters, and a plethora of them will pop up for you. There's one I really like called Joint Sniper. Mm. So our listeners can just Google Joint Sniper anti-VD poster World War II. It'll pop right up. And it is a young woman standing outside of a dance hall and she's smoking a cigarette, which is very coded language at the time for kind of a bad woman. Oh, I see this. I Googled yes. as instructed. <laughs> so she's smoking a cigarette. And so it says, juke joint sniper, syphilis and gonorrhea. Oh, man. So what is the text of that poster, right? It's saying that this woman who's available to have sex with you is equivalent to an enemy sniper. Yeah. Her body, her willingness. <laughs> When you're looking at this image, I'm actually going to put a link in the show notes to the, some of these images because I think it'll be important for our listeners, Please especially do. when when you're looking at this image, you just see like this person that you're looking at, she looks tired. Yeah. She looks, it almost looks like her lipstick is smudged. Mm-hmm. And she has a very red face mm-hmm. and the big bold letters at the very top says she may be. Yeah. And dot, dot, dot. It's almost like... It seems almost like a horror movie in advertisements. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's another one that was very popular at the time called She May Look Clean But. Oh, yes, I see that one yeah, too. Yeah, and it pictures just this girl who looks kind of like your everyday girl next door. And her face is looming over three male figures, one in an army uniform, one in a navy uniform, and one in a business suit. And it says, she may look clean, but pickups, good time girls, prostitutes, spread syphilis and gonorrhea. And then possibly my favorite single line of text ever, you can't beat the axis if you get VD. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) You can't. So, like, you can't beat the axis of evil, I imagine. Just, oh, That is what it means. I have another poster. It's a little harder to find. But it says prophylaxis in big block letters. And then the fill, the P-H-Y-L, is dashed out. 
so that it says pro access. Because if you don't use prophylaxis, you're by default pro-access because you can't beat the access if you get VD. And so there's just, these posters are amazing and kind of fascinating. But the image that you see over and over again are these women. And the implication is these women are willing to have sex with you. And because they're willing to have sex with you, they're dangerous and they're diseased and they're a threat to your health and they're a threat to national security. So as you know, I have a background in math, and so I tend to think of things as kind of like proof arguments. So if that's sort of the positive argument, someone who wants to have sex with you is dangerous, the contrapositive of that argument is the only safe person to have sex with is someone who doesn't want to have sex with you. That is the implied contrapositive of that argument. A little bit of trivia for our listeners, they can see a collection of these posters if they go to the National Library of Medicine's website. So the National Library of Medicine has a visual culture and public health posters, and under the rubric of infectious diseases, they focus on venereal disease, and there's a collection of kind of the biggest hits of these anti-VD posters. Just as a little piece of trivia, because I think it's easy to think, oh, well, that was World War II, we know better now. So if you go to the National Library of Medicine's website that contains these posters, which I will send to you as a link, mm. so you can add And I it. will make sure you all can find it. What you see are you see a lot of VD posters, five of them, I think, with women as the focus of the image. So there's the Juke Joint Sniper, there's the She May Look Clean Butt, the She May Be, and a couple of extras. But they all feature women as the visual center of the poster. And they all have this equivalence that the this woman's body is dangerous, as dangerous as an enemy, an enemy sniper, or, you know, it's a threat to you and to national security. What's interesting about that is in my research, I looked up lots of VD posters, and it's important to understand the government paid tons and tons of money for these VD posters. And there were hundreds of them produced, and they were put everywhere. One Office of War Information official referred to them as live ammunition in the fight against the Axis. That's how important they thought of these posters. Just as important as bullets and a fight in mind for the hearts of the American people is the language they used. So they made hundreds, literally hundreds of these posters so in my research, I actually just sat down and counted one day how many of these posters featured men as the center of the image, as the, the kind of protagonist of the image, if you will, and how many featured women. And Erica, it was a ratio of almost 10 to 1. Men were featured pretty much almost 10 to 1. And so it's interesting that the National Library of Medicine in choosing posters to talk about this, chose only the posters of women as the visual center and not the literal dozens of posters featuring men. So, you know, if you doubt that misogyny is alive and well today, which no one listening this week will, <laughs> even kind of that subtle choice about what makes it into the archive reinforces this idea of, you know, women being more dangerous. And so, in the War on Terror, October 2001, if you can remember 
2001 in October and what national security concerns the United States might have had in October 2001. I also found a representative on the floor of the House arguing over the budget bill. Abstinence-only education had already been fully funded to the tune of about $20 million. And representative from Oklahoma had introduced an amendment to fund it by another 20000 So he basically wanted to double the budget. So they're going back and forth, and they're kind of arguing over this bill. The Democrats are largely against it. The Republicans are largely for it. And one of the Republicans who's arguing from this bill says explicitly, from a national security standpoint, I don't know of anything more important than abstinence-only education. Which is nutter butter. <laughs> it is breathtaking. And what's interesting, too, is the Democrats who are arguing against this aren't really arguing against the idea of abstinence. They're fine with that. They're just saying, maybe we should spend $20 million on something else right now. Yes. It's really interesting to me, and just for our listeners' sake, so that they they understand. And I, I know that I've said this in, in previous episodes, and I think it's actually my first episode, if listeners want to go back and listen to it, that we have hundreds of studies that show that abstinence-only sex education does not work. So this is not a political issue. We know from science that it does not work. Yet here, you're giving an example of where this has been made political and abstinence and keeping people clean and kind of their, that version of what they think is going to help does not work at all. And they wanted, when we were at war, well, we're still at war, but like... When, when that war began, they wanted to focus on funding for something that we know does not work. And we knew then as well. 100%. And I would add, in addition to all of that, that when you say, I want to spend $20 million on abstinence-only education because abstinence is important for national security, that itself is a particular kind of interesting thought pattern. But it sounds on the surface like it's gender neutral. Oh, everyone can be abstinent. But it is the furthest thing from that. So when you read the abstinence-only curricula, and I have, but if you don't trust me, there's other people. We have studies on this who go through and code the language. It is very, very, very focused on women. It is very, very focused on white women. It assumes a middle-class background. It assumes able-bodiedness. It assumes neurotypicalness. So it's very focused on a particular type of woman. And if you fall outside of that, then, well, you just have to work harder to get to this thing. This is the gold standard. This is where you should be when in reality, we as humans are far more varied than this picture yes, that has been painted. Absolutely. And so I think one of the most disturbing things to me in abstinence-only curricula and there's a report called the Waxman Report from 2005 that found this. I looked at updated curricula from 2016, and I found a very similar thing, is that in abstinence-only curricula, not only is so much of the responsibility for abstinence placed on women in what they wear or the situations they get themselves into or this kind of typical gatekeeper victim-blaming language around sexual assault that we're very familiar with. But 
the way that they talk about sex, there's absolutely no difference in absence-only curricula between consensual sexual activity and sexual assault. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And I can speak to that just from having treated perpetrators Mm -hmm. of sexual assault, that their understanding of virginity is truly centered and focused on what would be heteronormative Mm -hmm. of a female, Mm -hmm. somebody who identifies as female, Mm -hmm. and that their physical body is virgin-like or perceived to be. Yeah, absolutely. In abstinence-only education, the important distinction is did you have sex before marriage or after marriage, not was that sex consensual, was that sex pleasurable, did that sex meet your needs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is terrifying because even though the language is focused on young women, young men and young people in general are picking up these messages about bodies and about sexuality. And it's kind of mind boggling. And one of the things that I like to tell folks, and if I just had to sum up all of my conclusions in one sentence, it would be virginity is the biggest con ever gotten away with. It really and truly is because it's it's a moving target for women and it's kind of explicitly put on the bodies of women. So even if we go to the root of the word, virgin means unmarried woman or young girl, but that word originated at a time in a society when those things were synonymous, when young women were married off shortly after their first menses. So to be unmarried and to be young, a young girl was the same thing. So that's literally what the word means. And so it has a lot to do with women's bodies. And the reason I think of it as a con is because that target is always shifting. And having grown up kind of in evangelical purity culture, I feel this very personally. You know, at first there's this idea that virginity is about the body and about the hymen and about what acts you do and don't partake in. But then evangelical purity culture takes it a step further and says, no, no, it's about the purity of your mind and your spirit, right? And how did you intend to dress? Did you intend to dress to get a boy's attention? Because if so, that's a sexual sin that you just committed and you're not as pure, which leads to this whole nexus of constant self-policing and self-doubt and maybe the roots of my anxiety disorder. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think that's completely fair. And I mean, Jamie's showing her cards here and I, Jamie and I both went to a Presbyterian university where the focus on being married and having sex before marriage was seen culturally as problematic. When in reality, they were college students and were all having sex, many of them before marriage. <laughs> yes. But put a front out there that they had to be this person. They had to show themselves as this person because they were trying to live up the, to those expectations. And when having worked with perpetrators, when my groups would talk about virginity, they used to, you know, be like, you know, Miss Miley, we don't want to see you get on the soapbox about hymens again. <laughs> Because you get, I'm, I should do an entire episode about the high. Oh my god, yes, um, yes. <laughs> but many of them, they went to prison during a period of time when they actually did they and they still some some states that still do this that do hymen examinations for proof of sexual assault, which is 
horseshit. I'm saying it right now. Everybody needs to hear it. It doesn't work that way. Hymens don't work that way. And the idea that virginity is based upon these ideas and these social norms is problematic. And it's important that Jamie and I are talking about this today because of what's happening in our media. The importance placed on the responsibility of the victim for something that harm that was done to them Mm. is atrocious. Absolutely. We need to look at sexuality and how we teach our children about their bodies and the health of those bodies in a very different way. They are doing it in other countries (laughs) and doing it well in other countries. The Dutch have it nailed. But I think it's really important. I do want you to talk a little bit before I get off. I will jump on this bandwagon (laughs) and just take it down. I love it. (laughs) I do want you to talk a little bit about the comparison some more of of World War II and that period of time during like Secrets of the American Teenager. Mm -hmm. Like what did you see during that time that was so similar to World War II? So much and so much getting at kind of what virginity is. So in in addition to being a con, part of why it's a con is because the purpose of virginity has been intentionally and consistently and thoroughly misrepresented. So a lot of people experience, and this can come from a religious background, but it doesn't have to, that your virginity is in some way a measure, particularly if you're a woman, on kind of like your internal strength or your willpower to resist sex until a certain time, which somehow in some unidentifiable way makes you a better person. This sounds like how they do car insurance rates. Yeah, very much. Honestly, like you you turn 25 and you get that magic like driving ability. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not wrong. I remember I was committed to remaining a virgin for marriage until very late in my adulthood. I had a friend who was similarly committed, who was the same age. And we both often talked about like, we can only keep this up until 30. Like if the Lord does not see fit to have us married and fucking by 30, all bets are off. (laughs) Like this is just, we're done. We're out. Um, That's quite enough. (laughs) Indeed. So yeah, it's, it is very similar to you hit that magic age range. And so yeah, it's often been related to like women's strength of character or willpower. Virginity has very, very little to do with women. And that's one of the things that I found consistently in World War II and then the war on terror. And when I say it has little to do with women, I mean, women as people, it has a lot to do with women's bodies but it is a patriarchal masculinist construct. And so the essence of virginity is it is actually, it serves an economic function. And so we see this in different cultures all over the world when they start to have patrilineal descent specifically, that is when virginity becomes important. So patrilineal is, thank you, of course, when uh, (laughs) property passes from father to son. Exactly. So an an excellent example, right? In our current culture of this, you can actually jump on Hulu and watch the Hulu original Harlots. Uh, You can mm -hmm. see this and you can see what happens when they're actually selling off a young girl's virginity. And you can see that the virginity itself has a dollar amount. Yes. So 
Continue. I interrupted um, you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that example because it's important. So virginity tends to become important historically when we start to look at descent through the male line and inheritance through the male line. And the reason it's important is because the only way to ensure that your son gets your property is to make sure that that woman has never had sex with someone else. So we also see virginity before marriage and chastity within marriage become important when we see a rise of patrilineal descent in a given culture. And so what this does, right, is it takes a complex human person, a woman, and it turns them into a wealth transferring mechanism for men. And so I was talking with you a little bit before the podcast about the origins of the word rape in the Latin raptus, which was a category of property crime. So if you've ever heard the phrase to rape and pillage, those were not originally separate things. What that meant was invaders are going to land and they're going to take all your stuff. Those were both types of property crime. And so we have in English common law, which the U.S. kind of wholesale imported, we have this kind of interesting system where rape was considered a property crime done to the men who stood to gain from a woman's sexual value. So the rape of someone who was already a mother was considered very low. That woman had very little value left. She'd already served her function of creating a son for the father to pass his wealth to. In contrast, the rape of a virgin was the most severe type of property crime because you had deprived the man that owned her, be that brother, father, husband, whatever, of all of her potential value in being a wealth transferring mechanism for you. Right. So like vaginas and hymens <laughs> as a 401k plan. Yes. That's what we're talking about. That is a great way to put it. <laughs> so, you know, from that, I think comes this idea that virginity and that the hymen has this economic value because it's about a rare and exclusive type of property. Like there's some flowers that bloom like under only special conditions, like, you know, once every 10 years under a full moon or some shit. And people lose their fucking minds going on tourism for these flowers because it's fleeting and it's rare. And so in a world where women are basically a property transfer mechanism, the hymen represents a fleeting, rare culmination. That's the maximum value that that thing, and I use that language very specifically here, will ever have. And so people want to bid to get the thing. Yeah. And actually, you see that actually happen in Harlots. They show that practice. They show all of that and what that looks like. So if you do, if the listeners out there want to see like a dramatization of something like that, that's, they do that. And it is, it is a hard thing to watch. Absolutely. And again, just for any listeners who think this is kind of a silly, outdated practice, if you just Google woman sells virginity to pay for college, you'll get a couple of news stories of different women on different continents who have made six figures doing this thing. <laughs> so this is not, it's not as common, but it is also not eradicated by any means. And there are people in this world who still, I mean, again, to reference my previous work with people who have committed sexual assault, there are people in this world that have that specific arousal to the virgin, the young female virgin that no one else has touched and that this person is going to teach them the ropes. That 
arousal is a very specific one and actually fairly I saw in some of the sexual assault perpetrators that I worked with very common. Absolutely. And I think I'm thinking of Hannah Blank's book here, Virgins and Untouched History. It's a very good book. It's very accessible. It's an easy and a fun read. And one of the things she really goes in on is that this kind of weird notion of virginity, like there's not a big deal around whether or not I've ever had sushi. You know, there's very few first times that kind of have this sort of (laughs) cachet. I have had sushi. I just want to just want to put that out there. Uh, (laughs) People were concerned. They were concerned. Please don't at me with your sushi rex. I we're fine. So she talks about how normalized this kind of weird concept of virginity is, is that we often don't think it's weird that men would, to a certain extent, kind of fetishize virginity. It's so normalized, we don't have a name for that fetish, whereas we have a name for almost every other fetish you can imagine. And so it's so normal that we don't even bother to name it. And just kind of in the interest of, I will lay all my cards out on the table here. I am a huge fan of romance novels. They are what I do in my spare time to forget about the world that I live in. And even the amount of books written by women for women that emphasize kind of virginity or learning sexuality or the importance of that. You know, I think we could have a whole other podcast of why adult women are attracted to that and what part of their own narrative they're having an opportunity to rethink in that genre. But again, that idea is just so normalized in our culture that like 90% of the romance novels I read are the plot is kind of like virgin becoming not virgin, getting married, having a baby. Mm -hmm. Or you must resist. Or you must must resist. resist. And that's weird. Like, why does no (laughs) one want to read about people that have had great sexual lives and have just decided to try something new? Right. And that they want all of these things and that they do want to engage in pleasure, that they do want to have fun with their sexual partner. All of that is fun. Fun and consent can be sexy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think I think that's a really good place to end. Fun and consent is <laughs> so sexy. sexy. And I want my listeners to be able to find you in the world, Dr. Jamie. How do they find you? So it depends on what they're looking for. They can certainly find me on Twitter at Jamaline. They'll know me right away because it says Dr. Jamie. If they're a little more interested in my research, there's two places they can check out. I've written a couple of pieces based on my research for the Ms. Magazine blog wonderful, wonderful organization. Love to work with them. They're always publishing cool stuff. So I would check them out frequently. But if you happen to be interested in the stuff I have written for them, I've written a piece on the Duggars and I've written a piece on Mike Pence. So you can search my name or you can search those keywords and they should pop up. The other place you can kind of find out more about my research is at my personal website, which is HuffLuck. So that's H-O-U-G-H-L-U-C-K.com. I haven't posted there in a while, but if you go to the about page, there will be my research and there's a couple links to other things I've written. And most recently, since I did finish up that PhD, I made every mistake you could possibly make in getting a PhD. I did all of it wrong, (laughs) all of it. And um, it has become my mission to save other people from making the mistakes I made. So I have started my business called abd2phd.com. So that's just the letters ABD, an acronym for all but dissertation. 
the number two phd.com. And that is where I tell everybody what I did wrong and tell you how not to do it. Mm. So for the month of October, we are focusing on how to write a first draft of a dissertation. In past months, we focused on what you need to do to get through your prelim exams. We focused on how to balance teaching with writing. We focused on how important taking time out for self-care is for PhD students, but that really transfers to anyone in kind of the intense creative Everybody. fields. Everybody. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, so you can also find me there. Those are kind of the places where I am at at the moment. Fantastic. And I will make sure all the things are in the show notes. So when you are looking and want an easy way to find Dr. Jamie, you will be able to find her there. And folks, thank you for listening today. And I'm so glad y'all are here. This was, this is a long one, but Jamie and I could go for and go days, and go. days and days. And for- we have for days. <laughs> true uh so thank you dr jamie for coming on the show and listeners we will see you next time thanks for listening folks please rate and review on itunes that helps this podcast get found if you leave a five-star review let me know about it on any social media and i'll shout you out on the podcast You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.